Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, if you would. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read this long passage in just a minute. But our topic is, uh, with our summer series that we began last time, Christian Liberty. You could also call it Freedom in God's Son. And last time we, we got an overview of the book in order to see how this final section fits in in, in, in its context, Galatians chapter 5 and 6 is probably not unfamiliar to you. It, it, it contains some of the most well-known segments in the Bible, um, yet they're just not always properly linked to, to the whole. I mean, Galatians 5 contains the passages, the, the command to walk by the Spirit, and you'll not obey the, the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. It contains the list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 6 begins with, if anyone is overtaken in a, in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Who doesn't know that passage? Not to mention Galatians 6, 7. Um, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever man so with that shall he also reap. Um, passages that are very familiar to you. What you may not realize is all of those passages fall under this heading of Christian liberty. They're somehow connected to freedom in God's Son. In, in fact, the whole theme of the book of Galatians is the, the gospel. The gospel of justification by faith defended against law works. It's the charter of Christian freedom in God's Son. And we started looking at this third and final section of Galatians where God provides the definition and the, the purpose of Christian liberty. And I explained to you last time why I uh, studied this passage and chose to preach it whenever I first came how many every years ago. And it had to do with people misusing this, this term, Christian liberty, or claiming Christian liberty as a as an excuse to be able to do things that they, that they wanted to do in disregard to, uh, to, the, to the body. Not that those preferences didn't matter. I mean, you have preferences, I have preferences, yet the Bible tells us to prefer one another, and that'll be a key as we'll, we'll see tonight. But Paul says you've been called to freedom. You, you clearly have Christian freedom. You have Christian liberty, and it's freedom in the Son. And so our first question that we have to answer is, what does that mean? What is Christian liberty? What, what is Christian freedom? I mean, does, the, does that have to do with my preferences, do's and don'ts? Um, there was a bunch of do's and don'ts in the Old Testament. Now there's not very many in the New Testament. You just kind of love. You just kind of be. There's not, you, you just flood everywhere. There's nothing that guides you. I mean, does that mean as a believer that I'm, I'm free to operate on my own as long as I feel right in my in my spirit, um, doesn't mean I no longer pay attention to God's law. The law doesn't apply at all. Um, if it's not important e anymore uh, because I'm under the new covenant, then, then, then how does it, what does the law of Christ mean? Well, Galatians 5, 13 through 6, 10 actually declares a believer is called by God into freedom so that through love they might be bound in service to, to one another. 
And that actually fulfills the true intent of the law. Which is why Jesus summarized the law in the way that he did. The first and second commander. The first and greatest, greatest commandment in the second one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He says the whole law and the prophets hangs upon that. It's a distillation of the, of the Ten Commandments, of the, of the law. And here you find Paul saying that, that same thing. Something about love. Something about loving other people. You've been called out of the Mosaic Law. You've been called out of the, the Old Covenant, the, the trappings that are there, no longer part of the, the bondwoman, but of the free, in order that you might love, which is what we'll see tonight. Freedom in God's Son and from the Mosaic Law allows a believer to actually fulfill the true intent of the, uh, of the law. We're not free from law, we're free to fulfill it. Now we desire to do that. And now we have the Spirit of God in, in His fullness that, that motivates us and empowers us and bears His fruit in our, in our lives uh, if we keep in step with the, with the Spirit, as we'll, we'll learn later. So over the next two months, we're going to see that Christian liberty is, is not about you. It's not about what you can do. But it's about your church, actually. And about, and about others. In fact, the true purpose of Christian freedom is at the heart of a believer's commitment to a, to a local church. And that's what I'm going to try to persuade you to see from Paul's letter to the Galatians, that your freedom in Christ is directly related to your clear commitment to your local church. Adrian Rogers said, saying, I love Jesus... But I don't love the church. It's like saying I, I love a severed head without a body. How ridiculous would that be? Or like saying, I really like you, Brian, but your wife I'm not too fond of. Now, nobody would ever say that. They'd say the opposite. They like Tracy, but not me. But think of that. You are one flesh with your wife, and Christ is one flesh with his body. And he is the head, and the church is his, is his body. So you can't say you're committed to Jesus, you love Jesus, and not be committed to, to, to other people. And the consumer mentality or low-level commitment uh, is not your right due to Christian liberty. In fact, it's disobedience to Christ. And I realize those are strong words, so hang with me and I'll try to back that up. But you're, you're freed by God in order to be bound to others. Freedom to be bound. That, that even sounds a little odd. But you'll see it's not as strange as it as it sounds. And the, and the last time we saw the position of Christian freedom. We're, we're called into this liberty in Christ Jesus. It's, it, it's freedom experienced in Him. Tonight we're going to see the purpose that God has for this freedom. So let's, let's read, beginning in verse 13, and we'll cover this, this whole section and see it in, in its entirety to, tonight. Verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren... Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite, bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For they're in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're plain, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of, of faith. A long passage, but that's the whole of it. And... Paul addresses justification by faith, and he shows that we have this positional freedom in Christ, and then he turns to the Spirit, this pursuit of sanctification that comes by the Spirit's power. We've been, been called into this position, and then we've been empowered by the Spirit to, to, to live in it and, and to grow in it. And, and the section deals with the law, what it is, it answers, are we still under the Mosaic law? It deals with Christian love and what it means, and most importantly for us, it covers what it means to be free in in Christ. And as I said, up on the screen, it declares a believer is called by God into freedom so that through love they may be bound in service to one another and thereby actually fulfilling the true intent of the law. So Christian liberty is not about you or what you can do, but it is about others. And this liberty actually is a contrast to freedom from commitment or responsibility in being served. So the true purpose is our commitment to our, our local church. And we said last week in verse 1, Paul makes an appeal to stand firm. You have been called into this freedom. For it was, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And he argued that with the Galatians because they had a desire to go back to the law and, and add things to Christ. And, and Paul has argued that in Christ we're freed from the law. And he He's shown the necessity of faith and the inability of the law and this position of sonship. So he says, stand in this position. Don't be moved. He makes this personal appeal in verses 2 through 12. And then he brings us to our, our theme again. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Further explanation. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, here's the contrast, if you bite or devour one another, take care that you're not consumed. The passage provides a clear definition of Christian liberty. We said there are five defining characteristics to freedom in, in God's Son. What is it? There are five characteristics here. And the first one was the significant meaning. Verse 13, Paul makes it very clear that that you're called to some position. There's a, this idea of freedom is not just doing what you want. It's a position. He says, stand in this freedom. You're called by God. That's the effectual call of God in salvation. God calls you out of the world and into Christ. And in this position, you, you, you stand in freedom. It's not a command. This is a fact. It's a theological fact. Meaning in Christ... You've been placed into this, into this position. Prior to Christ, you were not free. You were bound by sin and death. And prior to the cross, those who believed God by faith were not free in the sense of Galatians either. They were bound by a teacher named the Mosaic Law. And that law was their schoolmaster. and They were required to, to follow certain things. And they, they, they fell under that schoolmaster until the seed would come, and the Spirit would then light, write the law on their hearts. So Christian freedom is, is a vital truth. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a side thing. It's central to the gospel. Paul uses this term five times in the book of Galatians, freedom. Two of those, five, are right, right here in verse 13. He uses it in Galatians 2.4. And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in stealthily to spy out our freedom which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The second one is in Galatians 4.31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but, but of the free. Words used there. And we know the one in 5.1, stand therefore in this liberty, there's the word, by which Christ has made us free, and then twice in 5.13. For you, brethren, have been called to, to freedom. Only do not use your freedom or your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So in the context of the book of Galatians, he's speaking of freedom from the law, which was a correction that was needed. As I said, the Galatians were tempted to go back to the law, like, like, like we all are. We're tempted to start in Christ and then add some things to it. And unless you understand that Paul is arguing for a way of salvation here, a way of salvation by faith alone, and then sanctification comes from the indwelling spirit against another gospel. That's how he starts this whole book. If anybody preaches another gospel to you, what is this other gospel? Well, it's anything that doesn't have to do with justification by faith and, and sanctification by the spirit. Then if you don't understand that, then you can re reduce Christian liberty into, into freedoms like, like do's and don'ts. And unless you recognize the law Paul is talking about here, in context as the Mosaic Covenant, you can miss it as well. You can distort its meaning, giving it an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul starts his definition by, by defining what freedom is, is not. It's, it's a position, and it's, it's not an opportunity for the, for the flesh. Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, out of the world into Christ. Not under the law, but now... In, the, in Christ. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the, for the flesh. So he gives this negative definition. This is what Christian liberty is not. It's not an opportunity for the, 
for the flesh. It's not so you'll have cover to launch sinful activities. God did not call you to freedom in Christ to remove the legal requirements of the Mosaic Covenant and its restraints in order to free the natural desires of, of man. That's a distortion of, of freedom. So Paul warns that if you get Christian freedom wrong, it can be perverted. And you can tell when that happens because the flesh then gets an opportunity to re-enslave a believer. And that doesn't happen all at once. It is the frog in the water pot if you have fallen into sin in your Christian life, and I would guess most of you have, um, you know that you didn't just wake up one morning and decide to trash your life. You, you, you made a, a little compromise, a little decision that turned into another and turned into another and turned into, turned into another. And Paul says that one of, the, one of the, the, the things that can put you on that path is misinterpreting Christian freedom. But the Bible doesn't stop at the negative definition. After saying what freedom is not, Paul shows us what it's for by adding a, another layer. You see, remember, he's, he, he lays this definition like the, like the transparencies in your biology textbook. It starts with the skeleton, and then he just lays a transparency over it. So freedom is not for the flesh, but, but it is from love. So the third defining characteristic of freedom in God's Son, is its basic nature is, is love. Its meaning is significant. It has to do with salvation. You are called to freedom. I mean, that's salvation language. Its distortion is an opportunity to be re-enslaved, but the basic nature is, is love. Only do not turn your opportunity, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, verse 13, but through love serve one another. Now, you really don't want to miss this because it's really the heart of the whole section. You were called to freedom. Freedom into a... Uh, you, you don't want to turn that into an opportunity, and an occasion, a favorable circumstance for the flesh. But, through love, serve as slaves to one another. Freedom is not a base of, oper uh, base of operations for the flesh, but it is for the purpose of serving one another through love. And that's a needed exhortation, because we don't often think that way. Hudson Taylor was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia, and the moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. He he told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China and then presented him as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment when he took the pulpit and then opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. And that's the perspective that you should have. And if you understand what Christ has done for you, then and how he sets you free, then, then that is the perspective you'll have. Freedom's basic nature stresses it. I am a servant of a great master, and I serve out of love for him. And that love flows to other people. The word that's used here is an imperative through, through love, serve one, one another. It's a, it's a command. And it's actually not translated really well here. 
through love, serve one another. It's actually from the, the word doulos, which is where we get slave. So this is, this is to become a slave to someone, to, 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 to relinquish all rights, to, to, to give bond service to, to another person. It, to render slave service is probably the best way to, to translate it. Literally, but rather enslave yourselves to one another by the bondage of love. The shackles of that service is, is the, the bonds of, of love. Paul says, the purpose of your emancipation from the Mosaic law is not for yourself, but, but for the serving of others. That serving flows from love. Not a servant, but a, but a bond slave. Well, that sure changes the normal concept of Christian liberty, doesn't it? Christian liberty is normally about me and what I'm able to do. And don't you judge me, and I'm free in, in Christ. But, but Christ, through a gospel of grace, has called you to, to freedom. But you must not return to the enslavement of the legal precepts of the law, nor abuse this freedom through the flesh. But you must enslave yourselves to others through, through love. I mean, think of it this way. You're freed from the feasts, all of the requirements. When I was studying uh, Exodus 34, 33, and 34, I read, you know, before and after. And, and when God renews the covenant with, with Israel he, in, in 34, he, he goes into the feasts. Feast of, of uh, tabernacles, I think. And you don't have to do that any longer. You may uh, marvel at, at Jewish people who, who still do that. There, there might be some uh, fond thoughts in your hearts because you're, you know, they're children of Abraham and you're connected you know, to Abraham. You're a wild olive branch grafted in. But God's freed you from feasts so that, that you might be able to feed others. He's freed you from keeping certain days, the, the days in the Mosaic Covenant, so you can give your days to, to others. It's freed you from the, the, the Sabbath, the, where there would be one day a week where you would, would be able to focus on God so you can use every day of the week to focus on, on God. I mean, if you truly understand what God has done for you, you, you'll have no problem doing that for others. In fact, you desire to do that for others. Yeah, it gets burdensome sometimes. You can get twisted up around the, you know, around the, the, the spokes and get tired and grow weary in well-doing, and, and, and God might have to pump some air back in your, in your tire. You know, but, but if you're a genuine believer, you're spring-loaded to love God and to love other people. Just, it just comes out of you. Um, it's just there. You, you don't have a problem doing that for, for others. You don't keep a record of, of all the things that you've done for this person to make sure that they, they pay you back for whatever you, you've, you've done. Um, you don't have a problem doing that. On a visit to the, the Beethoven Museum in, in Bonn, a young American student became fascinated by the piano on which Beethoven had composed some of his greatest works. She asked the museum guard if she could play a few bars on it. She accompanied the request with a lavish tip, and the, the guard agreed. And the girl went to the piano and tinkled out the opening of the Moonlight Sonata. And as she was leaving, she said to the guard, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play on that piano. 
And the guard shook his head and said the famous, uh, the famed Polish pianist had just been there. He was here a few years ago, and he said he wasn't even worthy to touch it. The person who demands their rights is someone who still thinks they're worthy of something. And what we're worthy of is hell. We're not worthy of anything. We get God's grace because He is gracious and loves us. And Paul says true Christian liberty recognizes the, the opposite of being worthy of something. And it simply wants to serve. And the object of your service, the recipients of your service, is the church body. If you would at verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom. That's salvation language, brethren. He's talking to Christians. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You're not freed from the Mosaic law to do what you want. What are you freed for? But through love, serve one another. There's the object. The command to enslave yourself. You enslave yourself through love. And you enslave yourself to one another. The church body. One another is a phrase used over 56 times in the New Testament. In any time you see the phrase one another, you should think local church. It's the easiest way to define those words. It's talking about other believers, and yes, there is a universal church. Yes, there are believers all over the world, but you typically don't interact with believers all over the world. You interact with people that you sit on a church pew with or chairs beside every week. That, that's who these commands are, are to be fulfilled with or to, to be lived out with. Fifty-six times the New Testament uses this term, and in every case, it references other believers. Not believers out there somewhere, but believers who sat next to you. Here's just a, a small smattering of them. It's probably small. I'll read them to you. This is Matthew 18. It says, it says restore one another. Matthew 22, love one another. Matthew 23, practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness with one another. Matthew 28, 18, disciple one another. Mark 9, 5, be at peace with one another. Luke 10, love one another. John 13, serve one another. John 13, love one another. John 15, love one another. John 17, be united with one another. Acts 2, learn, share, and worship with one another. Acts 4, be united in heart with one another. Acts 6, care for one another. Acts 11, encourage one another. Romans 1, Romans 1, mutually encourage one another. Romans 12, members of one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Edify one another. Stop passing judgment with one another. Bear with one another. Please one another. Build up one another. You getting overwhelmed yet? Accept one another. Instruct one another. 
Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the only one that I would care that you wouldn't do for me, okay? <laughs> one another. It takes every one of us to do that. I mean, that's not all of them. That's just a smattering. There's 56 specific one another commands in the New Testament. And when you stand up for the people that are coming and the new people who are coming, you're saying that in Christ, I, I will try to live out those one another's to, to each other in the, in the church family. And, and those things that are on that list are, are, are where a biblical church actually functions. I mean, it takes every person in here. A church is not just the, 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 the pulpit. I can preach good sermons sometimes, good sermons most of the time, and and yet the church will not reach its potential unless you are ministering to one another. You're edified to, to live out. It takes every single person in the body fulfilling these commands, using the gifts that God has given them, and Paul says that just means that just looks like loving each other, being enslaved to each other. So don't ever get this idea of, of some kind of hierarchy. If I'm not in this position or I'm not here, then, then I'm, not, I'm not important. That, that's not what Scripture says at all. How many of those were you focused on this past week? How many of those took up an hour of your time? Well, a lot of you here tonight. It took up more than an hour to be here and provoke one another to love and good works. That's the most basic command that's given for a church member in the Bible. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. When you come together in the church body, you provoke, you encourage one another to love and, and good works by your very presence. Did you disciple someone? Did you weep with someone? Did you build someone up? Great. Paul says, excel still the more. That's why you were freed from all of those, those mosaic ceremonies. We've been freed in Christ. And so we must do this work. I mean, that's a far cry from, from I want my MTV if you're from the 80s. Or I want my kind of music. Or I don't like these ministries or this service time or that program. You see how that can be an affront to God if you, you actually use freedom in Christ as the reason that you're claiming those things? I mean, I don't, again, I don't mean that you can't have preferences about things. You surely will. And, and some of them may even be a reason to choose this church family over, over another one. But wherever you are in a, in a body, the Bible says, prefer one another. Not even your own preferences. You'll have them. You just prefer others, not yourselves. And you must not use liberty in Christ as the reason to move around. If you do decide that there is a good reason to choose a new church family, then check your heart to make sure you're not running from something like conflict and make sure you aren't your desires aren't leading you to settle for something less, like fluffy, non-convictional preaching. And, and then just be honest. I don't prefer this or, or whatever reason that is. You, I mean, you've heard there are three reasons that people leave a church, right? There, there's the reason that they tell you, there's the reason they tell others, and then there's the real reason. May the real reason be a biblical reason. May it be a reason that advances the cause of Christ, not our own desires. But then wherever you land, be there. Be committed. When I first started working with, with youth, I got wrapped up in, in the whole music issue. 
And I, I got really put out with the older folks in the, in the church who just didn't understand the music these young people want to listen to. And, and sadly, I used these verses. It's probably why it sticks in my heart so and was still in my, my mind whenever I was thinking about, about what, to, what to write on. I said they're trying to force their music on the youth, but in reality, I was doing the exact same thing and couldn't see it. I'm forcing the youth music on, on the rest of the church, claiming they're the ones that are forcing the music. God showed me my error, and I repented. Again, I'm not saying that they're not preference issues that you can differ on. What I am saying is this verse, you don't use this verse to assert your preference over, over others. That, that's wrong. It's the opposite of what this verse says. We're to be serving others, not, not ourselves. And this service is through love. It's the last thing we haven't covered. Verse 13. Don't turn the opportunity, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So freedom's purpose is to enslave yourself. The object or the recipient is the church family, the church body. That's the one another. And this service is through love. Now, Paul's already connected love to faith, not the law. Look back at verse 6 of chapter, chapter 5. He's arguing here. Remember, he says, stand in this, stand firm in this, this freedom. Don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Look at verse 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So what does mean something, Paul? Faith working through love. Faith is the, the key to eternal life. And what flows from that is love. As a believer, we've been freed for a purpose. That's so that faith can work through, through love instead of flesh wrestling through the law. I mean, the law can't save. And the law can't produce love. It can't produce heartfelt service. What produces heartfelt service? Love for God. And love for God produces love for, for others. And love for others produces bond-servant type of commitment, pouring out your life for, for other people, faith's fruit. Is, is love. This has been his argument since chapter 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Why? So you could be free to serve others. I mean, God in the gospel freed you by faith from serving him in the Mosaic law because its purpose for a believer has been fulfilled in Christ so that you may now, through love, serve others. I mean, it changes everything. It moves the motivation of your service internal rather than external. Paul's been arguing that, that a believer, being a believer involves possessing Christ's very nature and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And, and so the motivation to obey is internal now rather than external. And the power to obey is the Spirit, which is what he'll talk about next, rather than the flesh operating in, by law precepts. And so Paul is saying our service comes, comes out of love, not fear. Fear's a very poor motivator. I mean, the Bible talks about fearing God. It's revering God. But, but biblical fear has an aspect of love to it. Just, just raw fear, because I, I don't want to get whacked by God or I don't want to do the wrong thing, is a very poor motivator. You spend a lot of your time burdened, worried about what you, you did or did you do enough to please God. Maybe often concerned about making sure that you hit the exact target of God's expectation 
maybe even other people's. It's a life that might be motivated by fear. It's definitely not motivated by love. It's a miserable way to live. It's a wrong perspective of service to God. God's service moves us by love, not, not fear. I don't believe that God's honored in any way by, by that when we scurry around always in some state of anxiety or angst about pleasing Him. I mean, you may think of it this way. You love your children. They're your children. Nothing will ever change that. Let's say you told them to clean your rooms, clean their rooms. What you meant by that was hang up your clothes, make your bed, and put your toys away. And let's say your son does that, Junior does that, and it takes him a really long time. He's been up there like three hours for what you thought was like a 15-minute job. You go to his room and you peek through the, the crack in the, in the door and you find him taking his blue truck and his red car and moving them back and forth in one position to, to the other with a really worried look on his face. You look over at his dresser and his clothes are perfectly sorted and stacked in, in perfect order and he hasn't even touched his bed. And, and if you're at my house, I mean, one of the first things you would do if you would see that would you pass out because let's, but let's say room cleaning is normal in your house. You, you might think that you just discovered your, your child has a severe case of OCD, but let's say you go in and you ask him, well, what are you doing? Why hasn't the bed been made? You've been here for three hours. And with a terrified look on his face, he, he tells you he's so sorry. He begs you not to be upset with him and tells you that, that he's been going back and forth trying to decide whether you would want the blue car or the red truck placed first in the toy line. And, and he thinks his clothing is folded right and he got the ends to match up exactly, and he just couldn't figure out uh, uh, how you would, you would want the bed in a way that, that, w- that was pleasing. And what you told Junior was clean his room. You could care less whether the blue truck was first or the red truck was, was first. You'd be pleased if he just picked up his room. You surely wouldn't reject him as your child if his trucks were out of order or if that's even what you were worried about. That's a kind of service that a loveless law produces. It's not obedience from the heart. That's a fear, not a love. And I'm afraid we do that with God sometimes. We, we, we go beyond what He commands. And then we think He frowns on us. We add extra things to His instructions, thinking that more is better. We, we take a command about praying, and we add a specific time to do it, and how many how long to do it, and how many times a day we do it, and then we conclude we're unspiritual if we don't do it exactly like that. When, when Scripture doesn't even give you those commands. We take principles about almost anything and think if a little is good, then a lot must be better. Of course there are commands about don't be spiritually lazy. But if you're a genuine believer, you might need to be prodded to to not be spiritually lazy. But inside of you, you want to please God. You you probably have just as much a tendency to go beyond the text than to fail to measure up to it. We take whatever it is and we go uh, go a little farther and think that that will really please God. And I guess I just want to remind you of something tonight. God's already pleased. He's already pleased with Jesus. And he can't be more pleased with Jesus than he is right now. And if you've been called into freedom in Christ, you're in him. 
And that's the point of the gospel. You can't please God no matter how far you go, no matter how, if you go 10 steps, 100 steps, whatever it might be. So you rest in Christ because he did please God. Remember what Jesus, what God said at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. And if you're in him, then God's commitment to you never changes. Well, you can disobey and you might bring a, a dark cloud between your fellowship with the Lord, but, but God's still there and his commitment to you doesn't change at all. That's what Paul's been talking about back in verse 12. He says, those of you who, who think you must add circumcision to the gospel to, to go a little further, why don't you just go all the way? If a little is good to get God's favor, then why not a whole lot? That's what we think sometimes. The point is the law can't justify you before God, but the law's not bad. We, we, we are. But Jesus fulfilled the law and he, and he kept it. So you must come through him. And it was for freedom that you were set free. And if God set you free, you're free indeed and you're free to serve. So what, what does a life look like focused on serving others? What, what does a life look like? What does a church look like that's focused on, on serving others? What does it mean to serve God in the, in the church? There's some flaws in it. But there was a book um, several years ago written by Colin Marshall and, and Tony Payne. It was called Trellis and the Vine. Some of you probably read it. They were trying to make this distinction between the need for programs and structures in the church, that's the trellis, but the real work that's done in the church is, is the vine, vine work, people work. This is what he said. The trellis represents the structure that we have in church, and the vine represents people. The trellis is the programs, rosters, property, buildings, committees, finances, budgets, the church office, planning and running events. He says every church needs a trellis, or else the, or else the vine just grows across the ground and, and is unkempt. He's not arguing here for you know, going back to primitive church where you all just kind of meet in your homes he says, however, many times we put way more work in the trellis and we neglect the vine. We reposition it, we repaint it, we add some additional support, all the while the vine is small and withered. In churches, trellis work tends to take over from vine work. Perhaps it's because trellis work is easier and less personally threatening. Vine work is personal and requires much prayer. It requires us to depend upon God, to open our mouths and speak God's word in, in some way to another person. Trellis work also often looks more impressive than vine work. It's visible, structural. We can point to something, something tangible. And he adds this stinging statement. It is very possible for churches to be given over totally to the maintaining of their institution. Whatever the reason, there is no doubt that in many churches, maintaining and improving the trellis constantly takes over from tending the vine. We run meetings, maintain buildings, sit on committees, appoint, look after staff, do administration, raise money, and generally tick the boxes that we want ticked. And what Paul's saying here is, the church is about people. And if you ever hear yourself saying, I, I don't have a place to serve, you need to remind yourself 
Ministry is not a position. It's not a program. Ministry is people. It's serving others in the body. Don't think serving in church means serving in a Sunday school class or being part of some specific ministry. People do that for sure. Those are, those are necessary positions. A pastor is a necessary position in the church. A deacon is a necessary position in, in the church. But, but those things are a means to an end. They're just one of many roles in, in the church. And you can look around you tonight. There are people everywhere. Maybe some you don't know. And all of them are a target for ministry. And so you can find ways to love one another. Maybe seek out somebody that you haven't met before. That's one of the ways that you exercise your Christian freedom in love. And we'll finish some more when we come back next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to even sit under it tonight. I pray something was said, something was read that may even motivate us to, to go back and do some additional study this week. And maybe we'll close this way, Lord. If there's a, a Christian here tonight that's discouraged, maybe someone who really, their relationship is, is more rooted in fear, just duty, Rather than, rather than love, I pray that you would remind them tonight that, that you can never be more pleased with them than you already are because you're pleased with your son and that they would be able to rest in that. And you might minister to them some way tonight, tomorrow, this week, or you'd remind them how much you love them. Um, and you might encourage them in the fight. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you for our church family. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.